And let me say good morning again and welcome now not only to those of you who are here in the traditional sanctuary, but also to those of you who are joining us in the contemporary service and via broadcast. Welcome. I'm glad that we can all be gathered as one church family, learning from God's word together even when we're in different places. We're going to be learning from this story of uh, Jesus' encounter with a man named Zacchaeus. So if you have a Bible with you, you might want to get that out. Be ready to read from Luke chapter 19 in a few minutes. If you'd like to use a Bible and don't have one, our ushers are going to be coming up the aisles here in just a second. And they've got some Bibles you can use during worship today. And you can just put that on the rack at the back of the room when you leave after this worship service. We're learning from the story of Jesus' encounter with a man named Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus is kind of famous for two things, I would say. First of all, Zacchaeus is famous for his stature. Zacchaeus was a, a short guy. He couldn't see over the crowd. I've always, really re- I've always really identified with Zacchaeus that way. I've always been a little guy, smallest guy in my class. I could never reach anything on the high shelves. It's not exactly true. But Zacchaeus was famous for being a wee little man. We were talking with one of the kids before worship this morning. He was doing some of the readings and helping them remember how to pronounce the name Zacchaeus, which isn't all that easy. And we reminded them of the children's song that says, Zacchaeus was a wee little man, and a wee little man was he. He's the first leprechaun in the Bible. I did never even knew that before. Zacchaeus was famous for his stature, but even more than that, Zacchaeus was famous for what happened in his life, for what he did with his money. At the very beginning of this passage, Zacchaeus is greedy and dishonest. And more than that, he's really good at it. He's really good at being greedy and dishonest. He has amassed for himself considerable wealth by those practices. By the end of the passage, Zacchaeus is generous and just. And he's using his resources, his wealth, to bless other people. It's a pretty impressive transformation in Zacchaeus' life. And as we read the story of Zacchaeus this morning, one of the things that I think we're going to learn together is, is this principle. His life is the illustration of a principle. And that principle is this. Resources follow relationships. Resources follow relationships. As I was thinking about that in this passage, it called to mind for me. It caused me to remember an experience that I had many years ago when I was still quite young. And it was a time when I experienced this principle operating in my life, but I didn't understand it at the time. And so I think I experienced it in a pretty negative way. And one of the reasons I have some passion to share this with you today is because I hope that we'll all experience it in a much more positive way than I did. When I experienced this happening in my life, for the first time that I can remember, I was in the ninth grade. And in the church that I grew up in, in the ninth grade, that was when kids were confirmed in the church. And I was confirmed in the church where I grew up when I was in the ninth grade. And what I remember happening after that, in fact, it's the only thing I remember happening after that, is that my church gave us who had been confirmed giving envelopes, offering envelopes. Had my name on the front, had like a little number up there so it could track my giving, so I could, you know, deduct from my taxes the massive tax-deductible gifts I was making as a ninth grader, but I got these offering envelopes. And I think that's a good idea. I think even younger than that, we want to train kids up in the way they should go and help us help teach kids the value of generosity. But for me, it started there, and even though I think it's a good idea, that's not what I thought when it happened. I mean, I was kind of an unusual ninth grader in a lot of ways anyway, but I'll tell you what, that did not make me happy. I was downright cranky about that. And the reason that I was upset about that is because I felt like I was getting hit up for money. I felt like that's how the church saw me now, that I was now just one more revenue stream for the church. And in all of my ninth grade maturity, it didn't dawn on me that as far as revenue streams go, not so important as a ninth grader. But at the time, I didn't understand why I was responding that way. I know I'm not the first person ever to feel that way. I know I won't be the last. I wouldn't be surprised if some of you have felt that way at one time or another. You may feel that way right now. I don't know about you for sure, but I know in my life the reason that I felt that way was because resources follow relationships. 
and because I didn't feel like I was a part of that church community. I mean, I was in some ways. I spent a lot of time there. I was pretty active in a lot of different things that happened in that church. But I didn't feel like I was a part of what God was doing in that church community. And resources follow relationships. And I didn't feel like there was a relationship. And so the resources didn't feel like they wanted to follow. Probably at the root of that, most importantly, some of you have heard me tell my story before. But at that point in my life as a ninth grader, I didn't have a relationship with Jesus was not an important part of my life at that point. And so there was really no interest on my part in seeing my resources go to support Jesus' priorities in the world. I wasn't actively rejecting Jesus. I was kind of active in church, but it wasn't an important thing to me. Resources follow relationships, and there wasn't much relationship in my life, so there wasn't much resource following along behind it. You know, we all experience this principle active in our lives in in a number of different ways. Imagine that you're going to be home some evening this week, and around dinner time, the phone rings. And you look at your caller ID and it says anonymous. And against your better judgment, you answer that phone call. It's a telemarketer. And you just, you breathe under your breath there. But they're not looking to sell you anything. They're looking for a donation. They would like you to make a gift to a cause that really you're in favor of. Let's say it's feeding starving children in the third world. Right? Nobody's opposed to that, right? We're all in favor of that. We like that. It's a good idea. And yet, we'd block that call if we could. We try to. I'm on the do not call list. Maybe you are too. We try to block that as much as possible. If we see it come through, we usually turn it down. If it comes up, we feel conflicted when it hits us, when the request comes, because we're in favor of it, but we really don't want to participate. Maybe we make a minimal gift to get off the phone as quickly as we possibly can. And again, this is something we actually like. This is a good idea. But resources are not flowing abundantly. You're not going to be sitting at home this week waiting for the phone to ring, going, please, I'd love to mail you a big check if you would just call me, whoever you might be. The reason that we're not making gifts like that very often or very generously is because resources follow relationships. And even if it's something you're in favor of, maybe you have no relationship with the final output and probably no relationship with the organization that's calling you. Resources follow relationships. I've seen this operate actually in the opposite direction or in an opposite way uh, in my own life recently in in a positive way. Later this summer, uh, and and I promise again, summer's coming. (laughs) Later this summer in August, I'm going to ride in the MS-150 bike ride with my dad back in Ohio. It's a 150-mile, two-day bike ride that raises funds to support the fight against multiple sclerosis. And uh, some of you heard me tell a month ago, I told a story in a sermon about kind of a disaster of a long bike journey that my dad and I took together a long time ago when I was in college. This is the first time we're doing anything like this since then, so I'm hoping for not a big disaster. This time around, my dad's been riding in this MS-150 for a number of years, and I never have. And I don't know how many more years he's going to do it, so I'm really looking forward to this kind of father-son thing. And I was sharing about that with some folks in my community group, that we were going to do this and how I was excited about it. And, you know, the idea is that pretty soon you start raising funds for that, you get people to sponsor you, and and you raise money to help support the fight against multiple sclerosis. But before I was even signed up, before I ever got to that point, these friends of mine said, hey, when you get to that point, sign me up. I'm in. I, I want to help support that. I hadn't even asked yet. I'm like, man, this is easy. And the reason that that happened is because they have a family member with MS. I said, you know, that's something that's close to our heart. They have a relationship. Resources follow relationships. And we're friends too, so they have some trust in that. But I don't want to give the impression, and it's easy to give the mistaken idea here, that by resources, all that's meant is money or material resources. We all manage a lot of different kinds of resources in our lives. Our time, our energy, our emotional resources. Our compassion, our, our, our reservoir of grace that we have for other people, our resources that we manage in our lives. And I also don't want to give the impression that when it comes to the operation of this principle, we're always the givers. Very often, we are the receivers. 
of the resources of the lives of other people. And it may or may not be material. At one time or another in all of our lives, we go through tough times. You may be in a very tough patch in your life right now. It may be that you're just coming out of one. It may be that you're about to go into one and you don't even know it yet. But at one time or another, we all need a shoulder to lean on to hold us up. You might need a shoulder to cry on. You might need a helping hand to pick you up from a place where you already fell. Maybe what you'll need is someone just to sit down there with you for a while. Maybe you need advice. Maybe you need uh, the story of someone who's been through before what you're going through right now. You just need the, the resources of somebody else to help you through. And if you would stop and think about who is it that would be there for you, who is it that would pour the resources of their life into your life, it's probably not a total stranger. Sometimes that happens. It's cool when it does. But most of the time, it's somebody who has a relationship with you. And they're willing to pour the resources of their life into yours because of that relationship. Resources follow relationships. I think it's important for us to understand this. If we don't get this, if we mess this up, it'll mess us up. We might find ourselves living the kind of life that, that I was on the track to live when I was in the ninth grade. Kind of stingy, cranky guy. We don't want to be on that path. We'll wind up not growing in the value of generosity that God wants for us. We'll wind up not getting to participate in the things that God wants us to do. When we do actually do a little bit of it, we won't do it with any joy in our lives. It'll be begrudging. It'll feel like guilt and conflict. But if we understand this, if for one thing it'll help us to grow in the value of generosity that God wants for us, It'll help us to grow in the participating in the things that God's doing in the world. And we get to do it with joy. We get to say, I'm so glad I get to be a part of the good things that God is doing in this world. And it's not just for us, but it's also for our communities. We get to be a part of benefiting what God's doing in the, in the lives of the people around us. There's, there's a lot at stake, I think, in us understanding how this works in the Bible story that we're reading today. In the story of Zacchaeus, at one level, at one level, it's a story of Zacchaeus moving from tremendous greed to tremendous generosity. But at a deeper level, I think it's a story of what's happening in Zacchaeus' relationships. It's a story of Zacchaeus moving from isolation and distance and detachment in probably all of his relationships to closeness in the one relationship in his life that matters the most. So I'd like to walk through the story with you, review what happened in it, and explain how this happens in Zacchaeus' life. So if you have your Bible with you, if you could open it up or turn it on to Luke chapter 19. I want to read the opening couple of verses with you here, Luke chapter 19, verses 1 through 4, and see how it is that this story sets us up to understand the action. This is what it says there in Luke chapter 19. Jesus entered Jericho and was passing through. Jericho is a city in Judea. He's on his way to Jerusalem. A man was there by the name of Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was wealthy. He wanted to see who Jesus was, but because he was short, he could not see over the crowd. So he ran ahead and climbed a sycamore fig tree to see him, since Jesus was coming that way. Okay, let's just stop there for a second. I want to just explain a couple of the things that the gospel writer Luke is setting us up to understand about Zacchaeus. First of all, we find out his occupation. He is a chief tax collector. I don't know if you've heard this before or not, but tax collectors in the first century were very, very unpopular. That's completely different now. Everybody loves the IRS. If you get a letter in the mail with the IRS on the outside, your, your heart is warmed. I know you open it up expecting good things, lavender-scented paper, the whole works. It was different back then. People did not like their tax collectors. And it's not just because they didn't like paying taxes. It's because in the first century, the tax collectors worked on commission, which is a nice way of saying they helped themselves to whatever they wanted. 
People didn't only have to pay what they owed. They didn't have to pay whatever it was that contributed to the upkeep of the roads and the buildings in the Roman Empire. They had to pay whatever the tax collector said. And the collector was lining his own pockets with that money. And the Bible here tells us that Zacchaeus was a chief tax collector. He was the boss. He was the president of all the rest of the crooks. He was the head guy in charge of this operation. This means that he got his money by stealing from the people underneath him. So the, the lower level tax collectors, they had to make sure they stole enough from the people so that when Zacchaeus stole from them, they'd still have something left over. Zacchaeus was a bad dude, not a popular guy. When I was first thinking about this story, I was thinking he's kind of like a mob boss, right? He's the guy who's in charge, who has other people doing the crimes underneath him. But then I thought, maybe this is more white collar crime. Maybe if he were alive today, he'd be doing it with pixels and bytes and electrons, right? He'd be at the top of some Ponzi scheme or something like that, stealing all kinds of money from people. Zacchaeus did not have good relationships in his life, not even with the other tax collectors because he was stealing from them. He was detached and isolated and distant. And then you see this again in the way that Zacchaeus encounters Jesus. Right? He has to go climb a sycamore fig tree to be able to see because the people in the crowd weren't going to let him to the front. They sure weren't going to help hold him up because they hated him. He had to climb this tree. And notice, he is not interested in engaging with Jesus, right? He's not asking a question. He's not trying to get Jesus' attention. He's just trying to see Jesus from way back here up on top of a tree behind the crowd. And that wouldn't stand out to me so much if it weren't for the stories that come right before this in Luke chapter 18. In the middle of Luke 18, there's this other story about a guy who also happens to have a lot of resources, a lot of material resources. Luke says he was another wealthy guy. But this guy came to Jesus with questions. He wanted to hear what Jesus had to say. He wanted to listen to Jesus' teaching. They kind of had some dialogue. The story right after that is a blind man by the side of the road crying out to Jesus when he finds out that Jesus is coming by. Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. These guys are inviting contact. They're inviting engagement with Jesus. Zacchaeus is up there in a tree. And he's curious. He wants to see for himself. But he's not interested in connecting with Jesus, having any kind of relationship or engagement with Jesus. He's watching from a distance. Resources follow relationships. Where would you say is the, if I were to ask you about the, the relational atmosphere, the relational quality in Zacchaeus' life on a scale of 1 to 10, 10 being really high, 1 being low, where, where would you put it on that scale? Maybe like 5 below, something like that? And we see at the same time the way that he's managing the resources in his life full of greed and dishonesty and injustice. Those things match because resources follow relationships. But let me show you something else, because something then happens in Zacchaeus' life that changes all of that. We're going to read the next couple of verses. This is Luke 19, verses 5 and 6. It says that when Jesus reached the spot, that's the spot where Zacchaeus was up there in the tree, he looked up and he said to him, Zacchaeus, come down immediately. I must stay at your house today. I just wonder when Jesus first started talking, like how big the lump was in Zacchaeus' throat. But by the time he's done, it says, Zacchaeus, he came down at once and he welcomed him gladly. That word welcome, it doesn't even just mean he was happy about this. He welcomed him. He received him. He received him into his house. Jesus says, I'm going to stay at your house today. Man, I wish there was a transcript of what happened in Zacchaeus' house that day. Because something happened. And I don't know if what happened happened when they were having lunch together. I don't know if it happened when they were having dinner together. I don't know if it happened when Jesus the carpenter was fixing the wobbly leg on Zacchaeus' table. I don't know when it happened, but something happened. Because you know what Zacchaeus says next is what Zacchaeus says. If we just skip a verse for a second, in verse 8, Zacchaeus stood up and he said to the Lord, Look, Lord, here and now, he's making a commitment, I give half my possessions 
to the poor. Half his accumulated net worth. That's an extreme act of generosity. And if I have cheated anybody out of anything, can I just say for a second? If I have cheated anybody out of anything, that's a very, very small if, very small if, I will pay back four times the amount. He's going to pay back his bad debts at 400% interest. That's pretty significant, I think. Something very big happened in Zacchaeus' life. He went through a transformation. He went through a transformation from being full of greed and dishonesty to being full of generosity and justice. He started to put his resources where his newfound relationship with Jesus was. Because resources follow relationships. He may have known from Jesus' reputation that preceded him, or maybe he knew it from knowing something about the Old Testament. Maybe he learned it from Jesus that day. But Jesus places a very high value. Jesus really cared in his lifetime about the poor. As the Bible tells us, God always has. And now Zacchaeus' resources are following this relationship. They're following Jesus' priorities. Jesus cares about honesty, about justice, about treating people fairly. As the Bible teaches us that God always has. And now Zacchaeus suddenly does also. If I've robbed anything from anybody, I'm going to pay that back with interest. I'm going to make it good. Zacchaeus' resources follow his newfound relationship with Jesus. It's quite a transformation in his life. And yet, I would say that we're going to miss the point of this passage. I would say that, that we would misunderstand this passage if we didn't know that the greatest example of resources following relationships hasn't even happened yet. It didn't happen in Zacchaeus' life. It happened in Jesus' life. It happened in Jesus himself before it ever happened in Zacchaeus. Right? Think about this for a second. Think about this scene. Jesus, the Bible tells us, is passing through Jericho. He's, he doesn't have, on his itinerary, is not an overnight in Jericho. He's passing through. He's on his way to Jerusalem. And he's going through this big old crowd, so big of a crowd that Zacchaeus had to climb a tree to see over it. Now, if, if you or I were walking through this crowd, if we were at rock star status, like I think Jesus is at this point in his ministry. The whole crowd around us would be a crowd full of blank faces. I don't think we'd hardly notice. We'd just be on our way to where we're going. But one of the things that I find so impressive, so amazing and wonderful about Jesus all throughout the stories of his life is how much he saw people. He, he noticed people. And not even just that they were there, but it's like he saw into them. Here he is in this place and he notices Zacchaeus up in the tree. And again, I don't know exactly how he knew who Zacchaeus was. Maybe a chief tax collector is enough of a public persona that he would be known by face to people around. Could be. Maybe tax collectors wore some kind of uniform that no archaeologist has dug up yet. Maybe it was supernatural insight on Jesus' part. But he looks up, he sees Zacchaeus, he knows who Zacchaeus is, he says, Zacchaeus, come down from that tree right now. Because I'm going to spend the rest of my day with you in your house. Jesus stops and pours the resources of his life into Zacchaeus. Now it's not monetary resources in this case, but it's his time. It's his energy. Jesus had precious little time to give, but he gave a portion of it to Zacchaeus. His grace his compassion he poured into Zacchaeus. Jesus spent on Zacchaeus what may be the most valuable asset any of us own. He spent his reputation on Zacchaeus. The Bible story tells us that people were grumbling that Zacchaeus went, Jesus went into the home of this tax collector. But Jesus seems not to have cared. He was willing to pay that price. He was willing to invest his resources in Zacchaeus. I'm asking the question, why? 
Why was that? The story doesn't tell us. It doesn't say so. But when you think about it, we do know that this was not Jesus' first tax collector, right? Jesus was actually kind of famous for hanging out with tax collectors. He was infamous for it. It had sullied his reputation before. He knew that tax collectors were sinners. He knew they had this tendency toward greed, this addiction to dishonesty. But Jesus also knew that he had the remedy for the disease in their hearts. Because he had a relationship with tax collectors in the past, he walks into Jericho, looks up and sees Zacchaeus in the tree, and invests in him. His resources followed his relationship. And now he's ready to pour into Zacchaeus' life. He's ready to save Zacchaeus as he has saved the lives of others. As he had called a guy named Matthew, or also sometimes called Levi, to be one of his group of 12 close disciples. Called him away from the tax collector's booth. And we know that he maintained some relationships. Maybe he continued to work in that regard. But he changed his life from the dishonesty and the greed that had been a part of his life before. We know that he spent time having dinners with tax collectors and prostitutes and got in trouble with that in the past. And now he, here he is again, bringing salvation, saving Zacchaeus from himself, saving him from his own sin, saving him from stinginess and greed and isolation and distance and detachment because he saw him. For me, this is the most powerful part of the story. This is the most powerful part of the story because I know that Jesus sees me too. And I know that Jesus sees you. He sees us in whatever tree we were hiding in, in whatever distance we were keeping from him in our lives. Jesus brings his life into collision with our lives. And he has the remedy for what's broken in us. Might very well be greed for us also. Maybe it is. We live in one of the most affluent times and places in human history. And we love it and we want more of it. And there's advertisements all around us all the time. We are constantly tempted in this regard to want more and more. We're constantly tempted to believe that we are the most important relationship in our own lives. And we ought to invest as much resource into ourselves as we possibly can. It's a temptation all of us face all the time. Might be something totally different though. Sin reveals itself in our lives in a whole variety of ways. It reveals itself in bitterness, unforgiveness, hopelessness, lust, and anger, and violence. Could be just about anything. But Jesus sees us in whatever tree we're hiding in, at whatever distance we're standing, and he knows that he has the remedy. Jesus is the remedy for whatever it is that's broken in our hearts, for whatever it is that's stealing life from us. And so Jesus has invited us to come down for the tree. And now Jesus has put us in what I would call the Zacchaeus position. That position is this. He's invited us, he's invited himself into our lives. And we are going to respond to that invitation. It's not really a question of whether or not we'll respond. It's really a question of how we respond. Because we could stay in the tree if we want. We'll just pretend we don't hear it. Maybe Jesus will keep on walking. We could hop down the back of the tree, run the opposite direction. Maybe we try to hide behind somebody else. We might just fit. Or we can come down the tree and do what Zacchaeus did. And say, I receive you into my house today. And the way that we respond to that invitation may take different shapes and different lives that are worshiping here today, depending on where you are in your life. Maybe what this means for you today is you go, wow, I really have been back in the tree. I've been at a distance. I've been checking this out with some detachment. But I'm ready to welcome Jesus into my life because he's invited himself in. Sometimes we talk about inviting Jesus into our lives or inviting Jesus into our hearts. That's okay. 
But when I read this story, I think maybe it'd be better for us to talk about accepting the invitation that Jesus has already initiated. He's initiated the relationship with you, with me, and with us together. And maybe today is the day that you say, come into my house. I welcome you gladly. I want to learn about your life. I want to follow where you lead. I want to love how you loved. I want to live how you lived. I know who I am because you say I am. I know I'm a child of God because you've said so. Maybe that's where you're at today. Maybe you're at a little different place. Maybe, maybe you feel like you're a little farther down the road than that. Jesus is already in your house, and he's beginning to have some conversation with you. And maybe Jesus is asking you some leading questions about the management of resources in your relationship with him. Could be money, could be time, could be energy, compassion, could be all manner of things. Because the way that, because resources follow relationships, it's also true that the way that we manage our resources can sometimes be diagnostic. It can sometimes be revealing of the character of our relationships. And maybe Jesus is asking us some leading questions and saying, put me at the center of your life. Allow me to be the Lord of your life that you say that I am. Come closer to me. Somebody told me once in a great word of grace and conviction, Jesus hardly ever says, try harder. Jesus says, come closer. Jesus is inviting you closer to him in your life. I think the story of all of our lives is, at one level, the story of how we manage the resources that have been entrusted to us, the material resources, the time, the energy. But at a deeper level, the story of our lives is the story of our relationships. And it is the story of the one relationship that matters most in our lives. So however it is that God's word from the scriptures is connecting with your life today, however it is that you're being invited to respond, I, I invite you to respond at least this way. I invite you to accept the invitation that Jesus has offered as he has invited himself into your life. That you might hear the word of God spoken over you today, the word by which Jesus concluded his dealings and taught the people around the house of Zacchaeus. He said today, here today in this example, in this place, in this response, today salvation has come to this house. Let's pray for God's salvation in our lives. God, we pray for the power of your saving work in our lives, that you would save us from ourselves, save us from the guilt of sin, but God, save us also from the allure of sin, from the power of temptation. Save us from ourselves, bring us into relationship with you. We pray for your work in our lives. We know that we resist you and we like to look from the outside, but we know that there is life with you. We can't do that on our own power, but you can do it. By your spirit, you can work miraculous things in our lives. And God, I pray that you would fill each one of us up with the remarkable, amazing peace that comes from knowing your good news and your grace in our lives, that comes from knowing Jesus. And God, I pray as you grant us that peace, that you would also begin to order our steps, set our priorities. God, break through whatever holds us back. Give us a fullness of life in Christ. We thank you for your work in our lives, and we invite it into our lives. Lead on, Lord. Lead on, we, we follow. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.